What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. This is Chris Stemp. Today, we are going to be asking the question, what is it like to be the son of the richest man on earth? We're talking to Peter Buffett. Now, some people might be thinking, uh, Jimmy, I didn't know Jimmy Buffett was that rich. That's not what we're referring to. Of course, we're referring to the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, his youngest son, Peter, in his own right, a very accomplished, respected man. And also, I got to add, one of the nicest guys I've had the chance to talk to, he actually had to reschedule a couple weeks prior to the interview. By the time we got on the phone, I completely forgot about it. And he was like, oh, you know, Chris, I'm sorry that I had to reschedule. Thanks for making the time. This is coming from a guy who runs a multi-billion dollar foundation. He's an Emmy Award winning musician, composer. He's written a New York Times best-selling book, which is incredible. It's actually how I found out about him and really wanted to get him on the show. The book is called Life is What You Make It. Find Your Own Path to Fulfillment. And I think it's really cool having somebody like Peter on the show to talk about finding your path to fulfillment because being given everything in life, oftentimes you have to find your way a lot differently. Sure, we're not saying he's going to complain about not having things, but you still want to find your purpose. And it takes away some of that drive, some of that identity when you really don't have to, right? You don't have to do it to live or to eat. We get into that with Peter. He's more than willing to talk about what it was like to be the son of Warren Buffett and then what it was like breaking out on his own, becoming that accomplished musician and composer and now very well-known philanthropist 
as he runs the Novo Foundation, which of course was set up using the money that his father gave to the foundation, but not to the children. So going to turn it over here to Peter in a second. Got something else to tell you about. So you guys know I have a nonprofit. We are currently doing a online charity auction. I tell you this because honestly, you can get some incredible deals. There were $50 gift cards to some amazing restaurants that just went for 20 bucks. So it's basically free money. There's wine tastings, there's meal delivery, there's yoga classes and skillets and all types of things on there that you can honestly get a great deal on. And it goes towards our nonprofit. We're helping to improve the consumption of healthful and sustainable food. We're working on the food industry. So head on over to ebay.com slash eat real. All one word. That's ebay.com slash eat real. Check it out. It's going through to December 15th. You can put your bid on there. Uh, we are we have partnered with eBay, but more than 90% of the funds go directly to the nonprofit organization, and we really appreciate it. As always, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check us out. Leave us a review on iTunes if you can. We really appreciate it. We really love this interview with Peter Buffett. Hope you guys do too. And now to the interview. All right, Peter. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're a busy man, so thank you uh, so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, I got to just jump in and ask you, I can't imagine what it's like. I know the world is wondering, what (laughs) is it like to be the son of the, you know, at one time and for a long period of time, richest man on earth? in the world. (laughs) That's a pretty weird thing when you think about it, right? Um, Well, I suppose I'd have to break it down in segments uh, because growing up, uh, it was probably very similar to growing up in most middle-class households in the country if, in fact, the father of that household was doing something he really loved doing because that was the uh, defining characteristic of my childhood was that my dad... Uh, loved going to work every day. And when he came home, he came home every day at the same time, uh, just like a lot of dads in the 60s, uh, at the dinner table every night. You know, so I had this very consistent uh, father and the whole kind of, you know, image of that. Um, And he was always happy. And he wasn't happy because he was making tons of money because we didn't know he was making tons of money. He was happy because he loved what he did. And the scorecard for loving what he did happened to be money. So (laughs) all his money would be piling up, but we weren't buying this or that. He still lives in the house I grew up in. He bought it in 1958, and he's still there. He drives himself to the same office as he did since I was, I think, five years old. Um, You know, there's there's nothing terribly fancy about his lifestyle, to say the least. Uh, And so growing up with him was incredibly normal basically and that was the huge blessing frankly because again the money and i think this is the the key point really is that he wasn't trying to prove his worth by making money to buy things to show people he was somebody right there wasn't some hole that he was trying to fill that that acquisitions you know consuming things uh, would say, look at me. You know, he, that just wasn't his style. It never has been. Um, so that was a huge gift. Now, of course, especially in the past ten years or so, 
since he has really been on the world stage and become a household name. Because frankly, you know, 10 years ago, or certainly 15, if you ask people who my dad was, most people would ask you if you meant Jimmy Buffett. You know, they, would, <laughs> they, they wouldn't make the connection unless you, you were in finance or in business in some way. Um, so it's only been the last 10 years or so that he's really kind of hit the world stage in kind of a household name way. And that's a little weird. <laughs> that's, it's it's got to yeah. be weird. I mean, that was one of the things I, I was thinking about. I can't even count the number of times in any conversation either I'm having or somebody where the name Warren Buffett comes up, right? It's very common to say something like, um, you know, the Warren Buffett of blank, right? Because right. he is synonymous <laughs> with an industry. And right. I, I just can't imagine having that same last name knowing, okay, I, I know, you know, obviously my father. And so the way I think of him, I can't imagine people equating that. I just can't imagine what it would do to your brain. Yeah. And, and the, the truth is, and I guess this is true of all developmental uh, psychology or whatever is your brain is mostly formed when you're really young, right? Mm. So, um, luckily, again, my brain reacts to that in sort of a bemused and and certainly detached kind of way. It's funny because I was just noticing the other day where, like, his name came up when I was in a cab or you know, like oh, wow. these weird things, and I think that is just so weird uh, because I'm detached from it and it doesn't really. It doesn't define me, and it doesn't, in a sense, mean anything to me. I, it's different if I was 20, you know, mm. or if I was a teenager, and this was happening to me, and that was my father. No question. I think it would have a very different effect. But because I was a, essentially a fully formed human by the time that stuff started, it strangely uh, is, is kind of detached from from anything really it's kind of wild it surprises me to tell you the truth <laughs> yeah no that actually does make sense i mean because oftentimes people you know people's memories are short right so we just yeah. hear warren buffett and we go oh my gosh you must have grown up living like a king and people right. serving you and all that and right. i've i've heard you speak i i mean i've read your book i love your message and we're gonna jump into that but i know that it wasn't the case. What what was it like? What was reality? And then when did it shift to the, oh my gosh, we have a ton of money? Yeah, well, it, it's funny because I, I it is in my book. It's why I wrote the book, really. And it's also in my show that I do, this concert and conversation, where I show pictures of the house. And the funny thing is, anybody that's in Omaha, they can find out exactly what it's like. Because he's like I said, he still lives in the house I grew up in. My grandparents, where my mom grew up, lived two blocks away. So I'd always walk down to my grandparents' house. Their door was always open. Go out and ride bikes until the streetlights came on. I walked to public school. I went to the same uh, elementary school my mother did. I had the same English teacher my mother had in high school. Uh, and it was a public high school. So, you know, this was incredibly average middle America stuff. And um, that was really consistent uh, all through you know, in high school until I graduated, went off to college. And, you know, we started to get a sense that my dad was doing something a little bit out of the ordinary. But it wasn't until I was in my 20s when Forbes or whoever started to make the, you know, richest people in America or the world or whatever list. And and he ended up either one or two. And I remember talking to my mom and we were laughing, just thinking, wow, now everybody else is going to think 
we're different than we are. <laughs> it was just this moment where it's like, okay, that just redefined people's projections, but we were the same people. And that was kind of weird. Yeah. And I also think that that goes to show the, and, and again, this is a theme throughout your book, but it's all about the values. I mean, the values that are established early on and that your father is well known for. I mean, everything you read kind of talks about he, him being uh, humble, him him being kind of salt of the earth, really, in a lot of ways. And it's clear that those are the things that you received, not the billions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the message, really, of the book and of my show is that, uh, you know, and, and parents and kids everywhere is that it's all about what's going on in the house in terms of love, nurturing, support, the community around you, the relatives around you, the, you know, your friends. I mean, that's, that really is what it's about. I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's helpful to have the rent paid and food on the table and clothes on your back. I mean, I, you know, granted, I'm talking to people that are at the level of, uh, certainly having the basics met, but but even then, if the basics aren't met, even more valuable to have the love and support and nurturance there. Uh, but it's always the you know the the fundamental stuff. It's not the money. You know, one thing that I I have heard, and I was in finance for a while, so I you know I've read plenty of articles about your dad. I mean, people have said, you know, what would you? What's the one question question you would ask if you talked to Warren Buffett? You know, so it's like. Those conversations happen all the time. And one of the things you hear a lot about is how ruthless he can be when it comes to business. So and and that's never looked at as a bad thing, right? Like ruthless in the way that he's so smart. He's very good at doing what you do in business, you know, um, increasing shareholder wealth, etc., um, what is the, from your perspective, the reality behind that? Like, is he different when he's doing business as opposed to when he's a father? Is that true at all? Is he very, is he ruthless? Is, you know, what are his motivations? What have you seen? Well, yeah, and that's really great and very interesting because I would not define it as ruthless only because ruthless feels like you don't take anything else under consideration uh, you know, it has a. It, it sounds very negative and, and mean, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And and what I think my dad's, I think the secret really to his success is a different variation on ruthlessness, which is uh, dispassionate or unemotional. So he uh, he famously says, "The stock doesn't know you own it," right? <laughs> so you have all these feelings about the business or the stock or this thing in your life or the money and what it means and you know all these kinds of things. He is incredibly rational, uh, which could be misconstrued as ruthless because he doesn't allow his emotions uh, to play really any role in his decision making. Uh, And again, that can feel ruthless, but it's different than that because, uh, I I mean, I'd have to look up the meaning of the word to say that for sure. Sure, But but, but ruthless sounds mean and Mm -hmm. my dad's not that. He's just completely detached from the negotiation. Yeah. And, and I, that's, I, I mean, I didn't mean ruthless in that sense, but yeah, I agree with yeah. you. I know what you're saying. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what he is, is incredibly fair. I mean, one thing I've seen with my dad and, and I would say is true for me too, is you show up to a negotiation and you know what you're willing to pay. You know what you think it's worth. And you say, this is it. 
And most people are used to somebody who's trying to get something over on them and make a deal. Mm -hmm. And so they go back and forth. And my dad doesn't do that. He'll leave. And that is ruthless in a sense. You know, he will leave the table saying, no, I'm not kidding. That's what I think it's worth. That's what I think is fair. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. I'm not trying to any of that stuff. I'm just saying with all my analysis, this is what I think it is. Let's not mess around with a bunch of back and forth. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. And. You know, one of the things I want to talk about, and again, the book we've mentioned a couple of times is called Life is What You Make of It. And then the subtitle is Find Your Own Path to Fulfillment. And one of the sections I found fascinating was you talk about some misconceptions behind work ethic. And it's something that's pervasive in the industry I was in with hours equals work ethic. You know, if I said I work 40 hours a week, That's nothing in comparison to most of my friends who put in 60 or 70 or 80, which means I have a worse work ethic. Right. What does work ethic mean for you? Given, again, you know, the father that you have, but uh, you mentioned he was home for dinner. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. I had some friends that work at Nike and, you know, they'd be, if they weren't returning emails at two in the morning, they would be considered slackers, you know, by their peers and stuff. And and it's and I think I say in the book it's been a while since I've read it, but um, <laughs> uh, a work ethic versus a worth ethic or something like that. Yep, and yep. the idea is that you know the, the ultimate phrase is something like you know if you love your work you actually don't work a day in your life. And you know that's what my dad would say is he actually never goes to work; he just goes and does what he loves to do every day. And so the the trick and all of this, by the way, has the caveat in my show. The first thing I say is, yes, my my book is called Life is What You Make It. And I know what you're thinking. Easy for you to say. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's there's no question that this this can be a difficult road to find. But the ultimate goal is to find something that you do that isn't about trying to prove your worth by how much time you spend doing it, but in fact, how much you love doing it, how passionate you are, how committed you are. And then it doesn't really matter how many hours you work, because regardless, you're going to get results because you're so into it. You know, Peter, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about what you how you start your show off, right? Easy for you to say, because I actually think you are the perfect person to be discussing this, the perfect person to write this book, Life is What You Make of It. And here's why. When your father is the richest man in the world, in, in a world where people define status, life, and success by money, I, I can't imagine the mental and emotional things you've gone through to find your identity. I, I know you've had to work on it. You've had to think differently about it. And you've had to think of success in your own way, more so than somebody who might not have that shadow. Do you think that gives you a very unique perspective? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess, again, I guess that's why I wrote the book. People would say, wow, you're Warren Buffett's son. You're so normal. <laughs> and so, And that really led to the book because I realized I do have a unique perspective. People are looking at me thinking either, you know, what a, a, a thing to carry around having this person as your father and trying to work out from under the shadow or – gee, what an easy life you've had. You didn't have to think about anything ever. Mm-hmm. And isn't that amazing? And, you know, neither of those things are completely true, certainly not the second one. Um, 
but again, the beauty of it is my dad always said, boy, if you can find something you love, go for it. That is the goal for you is to find something you love. And even then, even though I had a dad who showed it to me, who said it to me and my mom, you know, both, it still took me a while to really believe it and figure it out. And uh, luckily, I did have the support of my parents to say, you know, in terms of psychological support, go out there and go for it and try and figure something out. But again, the path, you know, Steve Jobs, I think, said you can only connect the dots in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of true. You look back and you see how everything led to everything else and how amazing it all was. But when you're in front of it trying to find it, uh, a lot of things don't make sense and a lot of disappointments seem like failures when actually, you know, again, and this is all in the book, you actually discover things you didn't know about yourself or all sorts of stuff. Yeah, well, that's why I'm coming to you for answers because I I, I look back in just my professional career and, and see some dots, but they haven't completely worked out yet. And I don't know if they ever will, but it can be a frustrating thing to think, oh, you know, one day... I'll look back and it'll all make sense. I want to know, how do I make sense of it now? And again, I know this is what you discussed, but what is your your theme, your advice on giving yourself the best chance to actually find your path to fulfillment? Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. It's loaded. Well, first, I recommend reading the book. Exactly. Um, And seriously, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is going to seem kind of weird, maybe, um, but being humble, uh, because if you're constantly in this state of sort of recognizing you can learn something, you can be in service to something, uh, you know, this, this idea of always essentially being in learning mode uh, shifts a perspective of a lot of things. And I was just talking to somebody yesterday who is young and wants to go into the music business in some way, like in the, working in a studio or you know working with artists and stuff. And I said, don't forget you're in a service industry. Don't think anything other than you're there to serve the client. And that's the way I was when I was writing music, you know, for commercials and film and television. I didn't think of myself as an artist and, oh, my God, I've made it, although it was great to be writing music and making a living. I thought I'm in service to a project. Somebody else is essentially my boss. I got to show up every, show up every day in a mode of, of humility and openness and uh, willing to learn and be, you know, uh, basically that and see where it takes me, uh, because that way I'll probably be more in an, uh, open to an element of surprise in a good way. Like something might happen, something might come to me that I hadn't thought of before. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking, if you've established the outcome, uh, like how much money you're going to make at 30 or how, you know, the position at the company you want to have or, uh, you know, if I don't have a hit record, I'm really not anybody in the music business. If you're like attached to some outcome, it's invariably going to disappoint you because you will either not get there the way you thought, you won't get there at all, but you'll miss some amazing opportunity you could have had, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, my mom had three rules. She said, show up, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the outcome. Wow. <laughs> and- and and that's kind of it. Uh, and and then you will be surprised 
uh, where uh, life can potentially take you because you don't have some preconceived notion of where you think you should be going. Honestly, I just got goosebumps. It happens It happens every now and again on this show, but because I've heard a lot of things about, and you know, a lot of cliches about the journey and, and all that, and I agree with it, right? A lot of these cliches come from great places, but I don't think I've heard of it in terms of what you were just saying, right? Don't, yeah. don't search for the outcome. Don't, uh, you know, yeah. look at that alone because oftentimes, especially in the business world, in today's crazy busy society, we're taught set goals and goals are outcomes. Right. So we right. become solely focused on them and our school system sets us up for that. Right. Absolutely. And, and yeah. then you get thrown into this world professionally, if you will. And really it is more about what you're doing as opposed to what happens. What is the result? Absolutely. I mean, and this might start to sound a little out there and kooky, but I'll tell you, being I live on a farm now, I live in nature, and, uh, you know, it's your best teacher for sure. And there is nothing in nature that knows where it's going. It just knows that it's supposed to pay attention to the fundamental principles of its being, whatever it happens to be. So, you know, when a, a leaf is growing out of a branch of a tree, it doesn't like pinpoint where it's going to go. It just knows that it's supposed to do certain things in certain ways. It's the most efficient thing on the planet, frankly, photosynthesis in terms of energy. And so it's got this machinery to just say go. And that's essentially life force, you know, which we all have. And you're exactly right. Our institutions, our educational system, and plenty of other institutions are trying to say, this is the way you do it. If you don't fit in this box, you don't belong. And just, you know, keep your eye on whatever ball you're supposed to keep your eye on. And that is not our nature. And uh, it's it's really uh it's it's not a good thing I, there's a lot of ways to to try and get out of the, you know what would be considered the matrix essentially yeah. uh but it's very difficult yeah you know it reminds me of this quote my wife it's her favorite quote and she kind of drilled it into my brain especially when i was going through tough times figuring out what i want to do i think it's lao tzu yep. i don't know how to pronounce it but yep, he's, right. i know he says nature does not hurry yet everything is accomplished Yes. And, and I love that because it's true, right? It doesn't know really. Uh, no. And it doesn't have these these time frames yet. Look at the wonder and amazement that comes from it. Yeah. No, it's phenomenal. He also he's got another quote that's great. Uh, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you are going. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there's he's got a few really amazing ones, but. But it's true. Nature, I got to tell you, my life has changed in the past uh, few years that I've lived out here as opposed to being in New York City. And and there's a reason why Thoreau or, or Walden or, you know, Walt, all these people go into nature uh, to to find the answers because they're actually all there. Uh, but it's it's against our nature for some reason in this day and age. Uh, to do that. But it's all relatively recent. I mean, we are natural beings and, mm -hmm. and the, all the answers are there. Yeah. I actually really want to get into that with you and I'll, I'll, we'll do that soon. One thing I did want to talk about though, is you're, you're a, you know, very accomplished musician, yeah, Emmy award winner, and you 
you took an interesting path to getting there. And the arts, I think, are one of the most difficult fields, right? If you just choose, I'm going to be maybe a musician. I know you started off really with an interest in photography. I mean, it's different. That's that's not the path of least resistance. So, you know, I think it's it's great if we could talk about how did you come into that, right? How did you find your own there, determine, wow, this is my passion, especially given the business background of your upbringing? Well, again, the the fundamental message I got at home was find something you love to do. And uh, I played piano ever since I was a little kid. I heard songs in my head. I took piano lessons. I took from different teachers. I would naturally just go to the piano and make stuff up. So the piano was definitely my friend uh, all through childhood. But again, when I graduated from high school, I did not jump off and go be a musician. I went off to college and uh, took everything that ended in 101 or ology at, at Stanford. I was lucky <laughs> enough to go to Stanford and my parents paid for school, which is a huge thing. So there was a little bit of a cushion there, to say the least. Um, but I realized that really my love was music. And I quit school, had a little bit of money. This is all in the book, of course, um, that my grandfather had left us. But I could have spent that in a day if I wanted to. But <laughs> I was very careful about how I spent that money and invested in some equipment and and that kind of thing. But again, the key was... I just wanted to be able to get up in the morning and somehow pay the rent making music or something in music. It wasn't even making it. So at first I would record other people. I knew I, again, was in a service industry. I was there uh, to to figure out pragmatically how to do this. And I was fortunate enough uh, to get into music for commercials. I had the right temperament. Uh, it was the right time. I was in San Francisco. Lots of lucky breaks, but also, again, uh, it was my uh, sort of my nature in terms of how I worked with people uh, and the kind of things I could do. And as I would establish my footing in one aspect of the business, so, for instance, engineering for other people, I could, I would basically just book recording time and do that. And once that kind of got solid, I'd experiment and say, okay, let's see if I can do this. And I got my commercial music business off the ground, and that was going really well. And I thought, well, what I really would love to do is get into film and television. So I'd experiment with doing demos and trying to do things. And I would have these combinations of preparedness uh, and and lucky breaks, you know, which is is the you know the opportunity side of it. And so a lot of it was being very pragmatic. Uh, very humble, again, knowing I was in a service industry, taking it slow, establishing a base from which I could sort of jump to the next thing and just continually build both my craft, which was the recording and writing and all that on demand with clients and all that stuff, and the art, which was my own style and my point of view in terms of how I was sounding and making music and, and my voice, essentially. And so I kept trying to develop those kind of lockstep uh, as my career kept developing. But but again, I think the key was being patient and um, uh, and essentially in service and humble. Did you ever worry that the profession you chose, especially one like music, which is fairly, you know, is fairly difficult, would not provide the monetary sustenance that that we need and that you needed, especially Again, coming from 
like I know you didn't you weren't given much. I mean, you had the necessities, but it's not like your dad was just throwing money at you. So but but coming from knowing that that your family has this amount of money, right? That that's right. your that's your baseline almost if you will. Did you ever worry, well what if I only make $20,000 a year forever in music, which I'm choosing? And then and then you could have said, well, I'll just go into business where I know I can at least make a good living. Yeah, no, you know what? I really again, my dad, the way we grew up uh, I mean, you, it would be pretty laughable to most people if they if they poked their head in on our family in 1967 or 1972 or something. I mean, in high school, I was warming up Gino's pizza rolls in the oven and making myself peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I was not, and generally, our family was not uh, high on any particular lifestyle. So that was very fortunate because when I was making music. I really didn't care if I made 20,000 a year as long as I was making music and having fun. So, um, you know, so it, I never had my eye on income beyond what do I need to just pay the rent and eat and that kind of stuff. It was, it was really never a question. Now, the funny thing is in the eighties, I made a lot of money. I mean, my commercial career was going really well. Uh, San Francisco is an expensive city. I was actually married at the time and yeah and had a couple of kids from that marriage and so i had a lifestyle to keep going and luckily the the business allowed that the thing i was worried about after two or three years of doing commercials is that i'd run out of ideas <laughs> i thought at some point this creative well is going to end but luckily it didn't wow yeah it's really interesting do you think the again that that sense of not focusing on an outcome is what helped you get through probably the beginning part of becoming a musician and a musician that can support himself? Yeah, for sure. Because I, I wasn't caught up in yeah any particular definition of right. success other than just waking up and making music and paying the rent. So my definition of success, my bar was very low. That's one of my dad's jokes, sort of. He's, mm -hmm. His joke is about relationships. How do you want a relationship? Who do you want to find as a spouse, if you want your relationship to last forever, you know, and you think, well, someone with a good sense of humor or is smart or, you know, all these different things. He says, no, you pick someone with low expectations. because <laughs> <laughs> They'll always be happy, you, uh, man, which is not the way to pick a, a spouse, but it's a funny idea. <laughs> it's hilarious. And you know, what? I cannot get over the fact I know this, I'm just beating a dead horse here, but it, the fact that I can imagine Warren Buffett, tell, you know, joking with you about it, like I know he's your dad, but I, I just yeah. I see him on the news and I picture him joking in his humble house, you know, and I just that's a, a hilarious mental image for me. Yeah, well, and that is him, and that's part of the the gift of having him as my dad is that what you see is in fact what you get. So when you see him on tv cracking some funny thing or or laughing or being whatever that's what he would be at the dinner table mm -hmm. uh you know so it's and and that is the beauty of him he's he's who he is you know all mm -hmm. the way through yeah and so you know continuing on the the musician career path one of the things i i have to bring up is you wrote the fire dance portion of dances with wolves correct right. yep yep that so that movie by the way i i mean 
it's one of the movies me and my brother joke about because I watched it so many times. <laughs> I love that movie. I love that scene. It's just fascinating. Would you say that that was your big break? That was the moment where you said, man, I'm, I made it. I made it as, you, as a musician. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I've had a, a couple of those in my life, and that one's definitely, in a sense, the biggest one for mm-hmm. sure. And the funny thing is the outcome of that, because I wanted to get into that world. And here I end up, my first real film excursion ends up being the biggest film of the year, certainly. And, and you know, a lot of people say that's their favorite scene in the film. And it really catapulted me so fast into what could have been decades of a career in Hollywood but in fact, I quickly realized that's not really what I wanted. By accomplishing that so soon, it showed me something that that took me in a completely different path. So I, it, it was an amazing, uh, you know, confluence of events in terms of where I was in my life, how it came to be, and and what it did for my career uh, for a, another couple of decades, essentially, but not in the way that most people would have taken it, which is would have run to Hollywood and gotten into the film business. And I kind of went a different direction. Yeah. It's so funny because you think about, okay, you know, you found your passion, which in and of itself is one of the most difficult things. You became a musician. Then you essentially reached the top of that industry. I mean, winning an Emmy is, is the top of that industry for the most part in, in such a blockbuster movie, you had this pivotal scene and then you said, well, okay, maybe I'll go a different way with it. It's interesting how you almost reached it and then said, that's, that's actually not it for me. Yeah. It, it, it surprised me. I'm essentially, I'm proud of myself for recognizing it as quickly as I did. Uh, and, and it really does tie into my dad's sensibility. And that's another thing. I didn't realize it at the time, but a few years afterwards, I went, oh my God, this is what my dad did, where, you know, most people in my dad's position would have been on Wall Street and doing this whole other scene. But he stayed in Omaha, you know, obviously very famously, he's like this guy in Omaha. And how weird is that? Well, I was living in Milwaukee when Dances with Wolves happened, and everybody said, you got to move to Hollywood. We'll introduce you to all the people and you'll get your career going. And I believed it for a while. And then I went, wait a minute. No, that's not me. I have a whole different thing that I feel like I'm headed towards. And I got to stay in Milwaukee, which is what I did. And and went, my trajectory was completely different. And I'm thrilled that it was completely different. Uh, but it was very much like my dad's approach. It's like I got to stick to what's true for me, not mm-hmm. what everybody else would think I should do. Which is a pervasive theme. I mean, I one of the questions that you ask, you kind of you know ask um, rhetorically or in your book is, how do we avoid the pressures that can trap us into lives that are not really our own? Yeah, and I found that. I mean, I found it took till twenty five, and stress literally drove me out of a job that. I was chasing this goal, this outcome that really I didn't even care about. Now I, I'm not money motivated at all. I've even taken personality tests that say like it's one of your least, uh, you know, your smallest motivators. We had a guy on the podcast where we talked about motivators and 
I realized that was my easy scorecard, if you will. It wasn't the one I wanted. It was just an easy way to say, well, here's a goal that society tells us. If I achieve it, then I'm good by society standards. And it literally drove me to the emergency room. So, you know, how do we do that? How do we avoid those pressures? Well, that, I mean, that's the, the, pardon the expression, million dollar question. Yeah. (laughs) Because it is running us and ruining us. I mean, the, this idea that we are defined by either what we own, how much money we have in the bank, how we look, how we, you know, I mean, it is, it, it's the way this culture keeps us trapped. And, and when I say culture, I mean sort of the social construct that we are now inside of for the past few decades or maybe, you know, half a century or so. And it's, it's, phenomenal because there are so many people that are 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 thinking they have to define themselves by criteria that they don't even know has been thrust upon them by by some outside force and it starts in school and then it, and and every time you turn on the television or you're on the internet there are messages or driving down the highway or wherever i mean the 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 consumer culture that we've created that keeps people in debt and searching for some outside form of uh, a completion in some way or another is massive. And uh, there's a documentary. It's it's like in three parts, so it's about three hours long. But it's a documentary called Century of the Self. It's a BBC documentary, and it is an extraordinary look at how, over the past century, we have in fact been turned from citizens into consumers, and and it's a reaction, believe it or not, to even things like World War II, when this country saw what happened in Germany, said we got to figure out how to keep our citizens kind of in line, and and then after the '60s, we got to keep the students in debt because people will start to get upset at certain things and they'll rise up and they'll react. I mean, there's so many structures in place and this is not conspiracy theory. This is just how our particular culture has morphed into something where so many of us are thinking they have to be something that they don't have to be uh, and and that it's outside themselves, this thing that they're trying to, to become. Absolutely. And it's such a struggle. Well, now I know Things are a little different. As you mentioned, you live on a farm in, in New York. Uh, you're also the co-chair at the Novo Foundation. What chapter in your life do you feel you're in right now? What is the the driving force behind kind of that, that big change of scenery, the change of probably daily activities that you're doing? What What's that shift been? Well, it's the merging of all things into uh, one life. <laughs> so hmm. there are no boundaries anymore in my life, which has been extraordinary to experience. Uh, my music, the philanthropic work, uh, the way I live, the relationship I'm in, all the relationships I'm in, they all form a cohesive unit, which I, you know, I consider myself extremely fortunate to have happening to me. And this is really because of a couple of things. That, frankly, my mother passed away in 2004, and we ended up. I ended up having money I didn't think I'd have. It's not huge amounts 
as my father famously said, it's enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. (laughs) So it's not as if we're living here with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, but we have enough if we're careful to live a different kind of life than I've ever lived before, especially on a farm in upstate New York. Uh, Then my dad decided in 2006 to essentially give all his money away to, to various foundations and and my wife and I've run one of those so I suddenly was exposed to aspects of the world uh, and aspects of of people's struggles and things I never had seen before Uh, and then my music which I thought may take a back seat to all of that has instead become one more aspect of my voice uh, in all of my work so all of my songs essentially in the past couple years have somehow touched on something I'm learning uh, from the philanthropic work or in my relationship or that kind of thing. And and so to really live a life now that has essentially no boundaries. I mean, everything I'm doing is a, a piece of a whole. And I, and I couldn't tell you when the clock stops on one aspect and it starts on another. I, I think that is truly the dream. I mean, at least in my opinion, that is all you can ask for. And it's achievable in different ways. As I'm sure you've learned, it's not really a matter of material goods or consumerism, right? You can be free and have that ability without needing a ton of money. No, and exactly. And and actually, you know, you can find out on the internet how much money we have. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's what I would love, and, and I'm really considering this seriously, is to kind of come out really publicly about it because it shames a whole lot of people that yeah. are holding a whole lot of money in the bank. Because here we are, like like we do believe we're living in this dream world in terms of all the opportunities, but we don't have a Ferrari in the garage. We have a Ford Escape, a 2009 <laughs> Ford Escape. But it doesn't matter. It gets us where we need to go, you know. And we're not buying – my wife isn't buying jewelry and I'm not buying whatever. But we have great friends. We eat amazing food from the land we live on. You know, all this stuff. And it's not, you know, tens of millions or, more, you know, hundreds or billions or whatever. And – and so it's absolutely true that, that, that if we flatten the world out uh, in terms of, of how much people are holding on to monetarily, mm-hmm. uh, I think everybody could do pretty darn well. I know. It's amazing. You know, and when you mentioned earlier in the, in the interview that your dad looked at money as kind of the scorecard and – you know, people, I've heard that expression before, but with him, you know, it's true because yeah. he literally spent his life. If, if all he was doing was accumulating that he accumulated it to give it away, which yeah. is, which is crazy. We're not talking, I'm going to give some of it away. I read an article that like he is trying to give all of it away. It's actually yeah. so much that it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And he would say that his only, and it's a big one, but his only extravagance is flying in a private airplane. You know, that is his big extravagance. Everything else, though, he has the diet of a five-year-old. I mean, he will <laughs> eat a McDonald's hamburger or whatever. You, I mean, he probably lives on... I'm going to guess maybe around $100,000 a year wow. if you strip out that one extravagance uh and I don't know what I don't know if you'd have to strip anything else out. I mean, he's really a simple guy and so he walks his talk for sure. 
Yeah, and I know I, I can even sense there's some people go like, yeah, but it's still 100000 Okay, let's just be clear here. The difference between $100,000 and what he has is right. so massive that right. there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, um, yeah there's, there's actually a study out there that you can find that says that after about, and I don't know what the family, you know, a couple or a single person or a family of four or two or whatever, after something like $75,000 a year, the happiness does not really go up very much and it starts to go down pretty quickly because yeah. you start to take on debt and you start to take on all this stuff. So it's kind of surprising. It, it's not, it, it, you know, it's more than way too many don't make, right. but, um, but still, it's not the kind of money people think. Sure. And you mentioned, you know, I know a big part of of what you do and the reason you moved in the farm you have is kind of living from food, from the land, uh, the support for local communities. And, and people on, that listen to this podcast know I'm a huge proponent of that. The nonprofit that I work for is big in that. What is it about that idea of living off the land, farming, the food, uh, local in nature, what is it about that that really excites you? Well, first and foremost, it is our nature. We all came from a tribe. For thousands and thousands of years, we we gathered in small communities, and it's in our DNA. It's our natural way. <laughs> and I believe that, for instance, the 2008 financial crisis would not have happened if you saw your banker in the grocery store because he would see that you were a human being. He would see your kids you know, he would know that, you know, your house and what the more, you know, all these things around relationships versus transactions would have not been there. And that's the difference. We are living in a transactional world. And when you're in community, when you talk about local, where you know where your food comes from, you know who your banker is, you know, you know, your everything essentially about the community. Uh, again, it's our natural way, and I think it will be that way again. I mean, I I think that that ultimately, I know nothing lasts forever, and that I don't. I'm I'm right now reading a book about our nation's history and how it was really uh, formed in the 1600s and 1700s, and we were a group of small communities. Not surprising, certainly, um, and everybody knew everybody else. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't a single 13 colonies. It was a whole bunch of different communities that really weren't necessarily together on a lot of things, but it didn't matter because they were in their own communities. And so it is the natural order of things. And I think we need to get back to that. We're going to get hit hard one way or another. I think if we don't, because of whether it's fossil fuels or or otherwise, something's going to wake us up and say, hey, we got to know who our neighbors are and where our food comes from. Yeah, you know, I read, I think it was an, uh, another interview you did, and I completely agree with this. You said, the world, the earth is going to be fine. It's right. us who have to worry about ourselves. And I think we forget that too often. We, oh, we got to save the planet. Well, n no, it has survived far more yeah. ridiculous things, and it will continue to go on. It's us Absolutely. that's going to struggle. Yeah, I mean, we're the youngest things on the planet, essentially. <laughs> We've been around for a couple hundred thousand years as people we know, you know, ourselves. We, and, and, you know, trees, rocks, squirrels, you know, these are hundreds of millions of years <laughs> of work. And, uh, you know, we just, we're acting like two-year-olds because that's what we actually are. You know, we're kind of the youngest thing. We think it's all about us. And, 
we will be reminded at some point that it is not all about us. And uh, and the trees and the rocks and the squirrels are all waiting patiently <laughs> to say, okay, one of these days these guys are going to figure it out. And it may take us a while. I mean, we may go through literally tens of thousands, if not millions of years of evolution before we truly become, you know, part of the natural system that, that we are a part of and should be a part of. You know, I just, I got this question in my mind. It's kind of, it's kind of insane, but like, have you ever talked to your dad and said, dad, look, uh, you have all this money. Can't we fix like the world? I mean, I mean, billions of dollars, right? Have, have, has that conversation ever come up at the dinner table? How do we make this huge impact with the resources we have? Well, I mean, in a sense, he's, he knows how hard that is, which is why he's actually not doing it. And he's giving the money to everybody else to do it because he is so keenly and this is why again he's so good at what he does actually because it gets into human nature and because he can remove uh in a way his humanness from the transaction he's got a leg up on almost everybody i mean it's incredible but but he knows that so in other words he can be in any sort of uh business relationship and recognize that the other person is going to behave in a certain way because that's the way humans behave and he can somehow he has this magical way of sort of disconnecting from that and so he would almost essentially say what i'm going to say which is you know you can't fix anything really you can only help people come to the conclusions they're going to come to by providing certain examples or certain ways of being. I mean, at the foundation, we talk about creating conditions for change because we can't change anything because it's going to take any particular person and their consciousness to decide to change and want to change. So you can only, again, create conditions for that to happen. You can't make anything happen. And that's the struggle uh, that I think we're in is we keep thinking, God, if everybody just agreed on this or agreed on that, but but people are coming to things in their own way at their own time. And of course, we have all these forces in terms of, again, culture telling us what we should be, how we should act, what's going to make us happy, all this stuff coming in from interests that really don't have our best interests at heart at all. Absolutely. You know, just, you know it's all about shareholder value and all these other things as opposed to what's the best thing for humanity. And it's... It's a little bit of an uphill fight. <laughs> it is. Well, when, when that happens and all we lose our resources, I'm coming to your farm to eat, eat your right. food. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's that's why we're here. Yes. Where our water and our food is, and we got solar panels. So. There you go. It's all we need. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. We went over on time. It, this has been so much fun. I couldn't wait to talk to you. I read your book twice just in the time since I saw you speak. And again, the book is Life is What You Make It. Find Your Own Path to Fulfillment. It's a New York Times bestseller. I know Bill Clinton speaks highly of it. There's a lot of people out there. And the Novo Foundation is doing great work. We're going to link to that right on our website. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to let our listeners know about or make aware of? Uh, no, I think it's it's fun if you have the, the foundation there, my website, the peterbuffett.com website. I got all sorts of fun things there. Uh, I do this funny little animated thing called Cello Dog and Mr. B. And, <laughs> and uh, that first episode kind of says everything. That's on the website. 
so no, I just appreciate uh, talking and exploring all the ideas and thoughts and questions. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, Peter, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's It's been fantastic. And yeah, we'll spread it around too. That's great. I really appreciate that. Well, Peter, thank you so much again. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Peter Buffett. Don't forget, you can find his book, Life is What You Make It, Find Your Own Path to Fulfillment on Amazon and at other local bookstores. If you do go shopping on Amazon, do not forget to use our Amazon banner over at smartpeoplepodcast.com or just use the link smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon and it takes you straight to Amazon where you do your shopping like normal, no cost to you, and we get a little kickback to support the show. If you guys enjoyed this episode or any other episode of Smart People Podcast, please make sure you head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a review there. We truly do appreciate when you guys leave feedback for the show. If you want to reach out directly to Chris or I, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Hope you guys had a fantastic Thanksgiving with your family and are looking forward to even a more amazing holiday season. We will see you guys next week.